Church. Special welcome to any of you who are visiting with us this morning. Uh, We're really glad that you are here with us. My name is Julie, and I am one of the pastors here. And I just wanted to take a quick second to reiterate the 4th of July plug that Jade made. Um, I think she said it well and that the 4th of July can be a very hyped-up holiday. And then if you don't have a cabin or if you don't know someone who has a cabin, you're like, what am I supposed to do with this day off? So if you are one of those people or if you have friends or coworkers or other people you know who might be interested in coming, we'd love to have them come. It's going to be super chill just playing our games and grilling out. So please invite your friends and come join us. Uh, well, it'll be a really good time. Okay, so today we get to start a new sermon series through the book of Ruth. And if you're unfamiliar with the book of Ruth, it is in the Old Testament, and it's a narrative book, which basically just means that it's telling a story, which I am really excited about because I love story. Uh, I studied English Lit in college, and for a short amount of time, I thought I wanted to be a high school English teacher, uh, which I know we have actual English teachers in the room. But today, as we do this, I wanted to indulge my inner teacher a little bit because I really want to ground us in the story of Ruth. And so to do that, I found one of these story charts. Maybe you guys remember this from when you were in school. This is actually a different graphic than I ever learned. I don't know if this is like the new one that people use. I'm getting a nod from the English teacher. Okay. Uh, But I actually really like it because... Uh, You can see on the sides you've got setting, characters, and conflict, which are the things that we're really going to focus on today as we get started in the book. Then you can also see kind of the arrows that go through like the different pieces of the plot, and then you've got theme in the middle. So, uh, But we're going to look, like I said, at those outside ones today because I really want us to uh, not just read this book and kind of breeze through it, but really think about the story uh, and what it's saying, what it's teaching us. So... We are going to get started uh, by looking at some of those outside pieces. So let's jump right in. Verses 1 and 2. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judea, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malone and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Okay, so let's look first at the setting. Right away it says, in the days when the judges ruled. So there's actually a book in the Old Testament called Judges that comes right before Ruth, and it describes this time in Israel's history that was pretty much a hot mess. Um, It was disturbing and violent, These judges that it talks about, they weren't like courtroom judges, but more like military political leaders. Uh, And because Israel and God's people weren't following his commands, weren't following God's commands, uh, it ends up just like slowly sinking into moral corruption. It's a really dark book if you ever read through it. And there's this phrase that kind of gets repeated in it uh, and is actually the last line of the book that says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so as you can see, that probably would not be a good thing and might lead to a lot of chaos and just in general hard things. So that's the setting of this book, right? We are starting this story in a time when everyone just did what was right in their own eyes. And then I want to look at, quick, too, where we are. You guys can tell I'm a visual learner. I always have, like, maps and charts and stuff because that just helps me. Um, 
But we see that they are coming from Bethlehem to Moab. And the funny thing about this, there's a little bit of irony playing out, is that they leave because there's a famine. But Bethlehem is, like, what it means is land of bread. So already you're getting this, like, okay, we're in this really bad time, and this place that's supposed to be, you know, abundant of food is, has nothing. So they move to Moab. And Moab would have been considered a pretty bad place to the Israelites because Moab worshipped other gods than their god, the true god. And they did a lot of things that would have been pretty detestable in our eyes and different practices as they followed these gods. So there was kind of this sense of you don't want to go to Moab and you certainly don't want to go there and then marry people from there and kind of be influenced by it. Uh, It's a little bit like if you, not that I have any experience of this, if you're from Wisconsin, maybe even you're from Green Bay, uh, and you're supposed to be considered a Packer fan. I don't really care about football that much, so it doesn't work perfectly. But if you're a big Packer fan, and you move to Minnesota and marry a big Vikings fan, some people might be worried about the influence that that might have over you. So... That's a very small example, obviously. This is like on a much larger and more serious scale. Uh, But there's this idea that you don't want to go there and you certainly don't want to marry people and get like put roots down and get connected to these people. Uh, Okay, so that's where we've got in terms of setting. So now I want to look a little bit at the characters. So verses 3 through 5 says, Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Both Malone and Killian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Okay, so right away we get the fact that Elimelech dies. Um, And so you still got these two sons. Uh, I... Okay, so names in the Old Testament are hard, right? This is like one of the things that sometimes prevents people from reading the Old Testament. So for me, I just make up how I'm going to pronounce it. And then uh, sometimes I think of other things that are connected to it to help me remember. So in my mind, I don't know if that's how you pronounce if it's Malone, but in my mind it's like Post Malone. Uh, And then I'm going to apologize right now in case I accidentally say Oprah instead of Orpah, because in my head, that's what it's been all week. And so, (laughs) uh, but anyways, you get these two sons, and the text doesn't actually even tell us which one marries Ruth and which one marries Orpah, because it's, at this point, kind of inconsequential, because they both die right away. So you get a dead husband, and then unfortunately, you get the two sons die as well. And this also, so we've got our characters, but this also presents our conflict for the story. So uh, at the time, in this time period, keeping the family line and keeping the male heirs going was very, very important. It was like of utmost importance. And so the fact that the story starts out with both the husband and then also the two sons dying is a really big conflict. And as modern readers, we don't necessarily feel that. We're kind of like, oh, wow, that's really tragic, but we don't understand maybe the magnitude of what that would have meant for Naomi and also for Ruth and Orpah. And so at this point, really, if you're reading this in um, the time that it was written, this is basically where the story would have ended because when you bury the two sons and the husband, you're basically burying Naomi as well 
she has no way to provide for herself, no way to take care of herself, um, and really she becomes like a huge target for abuse and exploitation, trafficking. Uh, unfortunately, that was the world that this was happening in. So the means of survival for Naomi, and also just the shame of not being able to carry on that family line, should have basically ended this story. Um, a lot of commentaries that I read actually compare Naomi to like a female Job. So if you've ever read the book of Job, it's also in the Old Testament, and it's the story of a man who loses everything, and he's kind of bereft and really upset about it, and in a lot of ways, Naomi is very similar. She loses her family, and truly she loses her ability to survive and to be safe in the world that she was living in. Now, for some of us, this patriarchal culture uh, and the fact that Naomi even has this problem is incredibly frustrating. I want to acknowledge that, that a lot of us are probably reading this and what we want as a result is for God to show up and say, we're just going to tear down this whole system. We want him to show up and say that women should be seen as equal in value to men and they shouldn't be viewed just by their ability to to produce heirs. Uh, And although God doesn't show up and do quite that in the way that maybe we would hope for today, uh, he does make quite a statement with this book. Because like I said, the story shouldn't even continue after this according to their cultural standards. And yet it does. Uh, One scholar that I read says that the book of Ruth is in many ways a critique of patriarchy. According to patriarchal values, both Naomi and Ruth have lost all value and ability to make any meaningful contribution to society. In opposition to that value system, Yahweh, or God, is raising up both women for significant kingdom purposes. Boaz, who's another character we're going to get to in a little bit, uh, in response to Ruth's initiatives, will subvert the very patriarchal mores that most benefit him as a man. Instead, he will sacrificially employ those benefits and privileges to empower Ruth and to benefit Naomi. So, uh, honestly, even just having a story in the Bible that follows these two female characters uh, in a text and in a culture that, for many years after this, is still pretty much dominated by men, would have been a really big deal. And as the quote kind of hints at, as the story goes on, we're going to see how both the men and the women in this story really do give a lot of value to women. So I want to just say that I know that sometimes this can be like a stumbling block for people as we read it in our modern society, but I want to think about it from that cultural perspective and keep in mind the conflict that they were facing and then also look at what the Bible has to say about it from there. All right, let's keep going in the story. Verses 6 through 10. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. So here, even in her suffering, Naomi thinks to put Ruth and Orpah before her. Even though she is past her childbearing age and therefore won't be seen as useful or of value in her culture, she knows that Ruth and Orpah have a second chance. They can remarry, they can have children, and so she encourages them to go and to do that. She encourages them to stay safe uh, and to find a second chance in their hometown. 
She also knows that if they accompany her back to Bethlehem, they will be the ones who are foreigners and essentially refugees. They'll be poor, widowed, barren, refugees, basically the lowest of the low in that culture. So instead, she encourages them to stay, and she asks that God would show them kindness just as they have showed her kindness. And now I get to be teachery again. I'm going to pause for a vocab break here, uh, because that word kindness, um, it's actually the word said, and it's a really important word, and it means something more than just, like, being nice, right? We're like, oh, that person's so kind, and we kind of just mean, like, they're a nice person. But this word actually has a pretty big meaning attached to it. One of the commentaries I read said that it cannot be translated with one English word. It's a covenant term wrapping up in itself all the positive attributes of God, Love, covenant faithfulness, mercy, grace, kindness, loyalty. In short, it refers to acts of devotion and loving kindness that go beyond the requirement of duty. So in the way that Ruth and Orpah have stayed with Naomi and with her family, even through disappointment and hardship, uh, one of the commentaries I read did the math thinking about the chance of conceiving a son every month, and then how many years, it says they were there for 10 years, that that would have been 240 disappointing months where they weren't conceiving a son. So they went well beyond uh, this like normal level of kindness, and they stayed with them. And Naomi points that out and says, you have been so kind to me and to my family, and so I am asking that God would be kind in that way, in a faithful, loyal, loving way to you uh, as you stay and hopefully have a chance for a better life. But instead, the daughters don't want to go. And they say, no, we're going to come with you. And Naomi responds by saying, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me. Even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? And again, this sounds a little weird to us. We're like, How, what is she saying? How is this going to work? Uh, but she's likely referring to an ancient Israelite law that if your husband died and you were barren, that the brother, your brother-in-law, so your husband's brother, Uh, was to step in and marry you so that you could have a son. And again, sounds weird to us, uh, but was very normal for that culture. That was what was expected. And so in this case, Naomi's saying, look, I'm past the age of having kids, but even if I wasn't, even if I could have a kid, like, you know, get married and have a kid right now, are you going to wait for them to grow up? You know, you're going to wait another however many years before they can be uh, married and have kids? She's basically saying, this doesn't make sense to stay with me. You should go stay with your hometown, stay with your original family, have a chance at a good life. Uh, And she continues on and says, No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. And the interesting thing to note here is that Orpah is not uh, chastised for this. She's not held up as like, oh, she did the wrong thing by going back. If anything, they're saying, this is the normal thing. This is what anybody and any normal person in this situation would do. Uh, But the thing is, then, it sets up a foil for what Ruth is going to do, because she has a a really extraordinary response. 
So we'll look at it in verse 16. She says, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates me from from you. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. She kind of has this like, resigned, okay, fine, you can come. Um, and whenever I read this, I, anyone else might feel this way too, but I always think of the Gilmore Girls theme song, <laughs> the where you lead, I will follow. I like, can't get it out of my head. Uh, and the truth is, we don't really know, you know, like, what was Ruth thinking in that moment? Was it because maybe she had a really great relationship with Naomi, like, you know, in Gilmore Girls, you know, they have this awesome mother-daughter bond. Uh, but I think there might be something more. And we get a hint to that in verse 16. Uh, we see something special because Ruth says, don't urge me to go. She says, your people will be my people and your God, my God. So you have to remember, like I said in the beginning, they are from Moab, a place that believed in different gods and had different customs. And yet here, Ruth shows us that she somehow believes in Yahweh and the God of Israel. I don't know if she has this like turning point moment right then, right there, as she's talking to Naomi and is like, nope, I'm making the decision. I am going to follow this God. Or maybe at some point in those 10 years of being in that family, she heard the stories of the great God of Israel and the amazing acts of redemption he did. Maybe she became a follower of him at some point in that time. But we see that Ruth has made a decision to turn from her life, from the gods that she followed and the customs she grew up with, to follow this God of Israel. And in that, she decides to follow God, even though she's following Naomi into a a really difficult situation. And she stays loyal to God and loyal to Naomi. I don't think we can understate how big of a sacrifice that would have been for Ruth. She's choosing to follow God and to show love to him and to Naomi, even though it means going to a foreign country where she will be literally the lowest of lows. She'll be a foreigner, an outsider, a refugee, a poor, barren widow. She'll basically have to go on what would have been Israel's welfare in order to survive. And yet she willingly chooses this to follow God and to show care for Naomi. It's a really big moment in Ruth's life. It's life-changing. And we're going to come back to this and kind of talk about what that means and how we should think about it. Uh, But I want to finish up the story of chapter 1 as we do this. So we're going to return back to Naomi. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So some of that exchange there, Naomi, the name means like pleasantness or pleasant life. And so she's saying, I do not have a pleasant life. Do not call me that. That is not who I am. That's not my experience right now. Instead, call me Mara, which is, means bitter. So she is clearly upset. Uh, and we have this moment of very real, raw emotion from Naomi. She feels like the Lord has afflicted her. 
And honestly, it's a tough moment to watch, right? When someone's going through something really hard and they're just letting out their true feelings about it, it can be a little uncomfortable. Uh, and I think sometimes we try to like explain it away or make it less uncomfortable. Um, I've heard some people when they talk about this passage kind of say like, oh, Naomi's just being dramatic and complaining. Like the moral is don't be like her. But I don't think that that's what this story is trying to say. Uh, I think it's just including this piece of the story that's very real and very raw. And I don't think we're supposed to like hold her up and blame her and make a negative example out of her. Again, it's helpful to kind of think about her as a female Job, right? Job has similar exclamations about, like, why is this happening to me? What is going on? Who is God? And why is he doing this? And I think that the author of the story is not including this to say, like, okay, this is, you know, like, we follow the good characters and we don't do what the bad characters do. Because I think the true character in the story is God, Right? The story is about God and who he is. And even though we haven't seen him come up as like an active character yet, we're supposed to read all of the Bible as a story about God that is for us, not for us, or not about us. Right? The Bible isn't about us, it's for us. And so I think it's important to, to read this story with that in mind. Uh, but with that in mind, I do want to point out some interesting things that Naomi doesn't do. So right, we see what she does say, but she doesn't say... Because I'm suffering and because my life is super hard, God must not love me, or God isn't faithful, or God is punishing me. You know, she went and married, or she went to a foreign country and her sons married foreign women. Maybe she could have thought, God's punishing me for these things that I've done. She doesn't say, well, God must not be real, uh, or if he is real, he just doesn't have control. And she doesn't say, this is the way things will be forever. She might feel those things or feel that it's going to be forever uh, because she feels hurt and afflicted, but she doesn't, or at least we don't see, that she makes some of those therefore jumps that we tend to make when we are suffering. Okay, so as I was talking about with uh, this story being a story about God, although we haven't seen him in the story yet, I think it's helpful for us to think about, in terms of conflict, what is the conflict for us as readers? So we see that the conflict for the characters is that all these men in the family are dead and they have no way to carry on the family line or to provide for themselves. And yet for us as readers, I think it's helpful for us to frame the conflict in terms of God's character being on the line. Naomi says, God has afflicted me. She kind of, without asking, asks the question, where is God in this? And what kind of God am I following if these are the things that are going to happen? Do we really follow a God that would bring Naomi back empty like this? Does our God even care about our suffering? Will God show them that kind of hesed love and kindness that Naomi was expecting him to show Ruth and Orpah? So again, we've been kind of comparing Naomi to the female Job, and much like the story of Job, ultimately what we want is for God to show up and give us some answers, right? Why is this happening? Why do bad things happen to good people? And what is God going to do about injustice? But in both of these narratives, we don't get those answers. Uh, We don't get a simple explanation of why bad things happen, because I think, honestly, that's what we'd really like, right? We really just want to know. We want to know the future. We want to know what God is doing. But we don't get that in these stories. Instead, we get attention, Uh, that you can feel right at the end of the story. 
they're moving back to Bethlehem, what's going to happen? Is it going to continue to be, is she going to continue to be afflicted, or is God going to show up and prove uh, his love to her? And if you haven't read this yet, I'm not going to spoil the ending for you today. I want us to live in that tension because I think it's truly where we live right now, right? We experience this tension in everyday life. And so I want us to kind of sit in it over the next week. If you really want to, you can go home and read the story at home. Uh, I'm not against that. Never going to be against you reading your Bible. Uh, But I want us to kind of wait and we'll see how the story plays out to sit in that conflict and feel how the story is moving. But I do want to turn and look at some application for us and for uh, how this beginning chapter of Ruth can apply to our lives. So the first thing I want us to think about is what do you need to leave behind in order to fully follow Christ? So we see Ruth leave the chances of a normal, comfortable, good life, right? She could have stayed, remarried, had kids, been a normal, you know, just an average, everyday girl. But instead, she makes this huge sacrifice to follow God and to care for Naomi. And so what do we need to leave behind in order to fully follow Christ? Sometimes these things might be things that we think will make a safe, comfortable, normal, good life. Maybe it's money so that we can live more comfortably and have security. Maybe it's the idea of the perfect house or the perfect spouse or the perfect kids. Not only do we have this pressure to live the quote-unquote good life that society tells us, but now we also have the pressure of documenting it because of social media. I just recently read an article in the New York Times that was talking about um, how newlyweds on their honeymoon are having all this pressure to like take pictures, like perfectly lit, perfectly angled pictures to put on social media and to prove to everyone around them that they're having such an amazing time in their newly married life and on their huge trip that they've been planning forever. And it sounds so ridiculous to to think about it, but it's honestly, I think we all feel that pressure, right? We feel the pressure to show that we are living that good life that we are doing well for ourselves, and that we're having just as much fun as everybody else is on the internet. And I just want to relieve you from that pressure, because God does not call us to a good life according to the cultural standards. He doesn't care how far up the corporate ladder you climb, or how strong your muscles are, and how often you do CrossFit, or how many awesome vacations you take. Whatever pressure you feel to live up to something, God does not call you to those standards. In fact, sometimes he calls you to leave those desires behind. Not that you can't like your job and work hard or take fun vacations, but when our desires for those things become so wrapped up as a part of who we are and they surpass our desire for God, it can become a problem. And sometimes, like I said, he calls us to leave those things behind or to set them aside for a moment so that we can more fully follow him and care for others around us the way that Ruth did. So I want to ask, is there something that God's calling you to put aside so that you can more fully follow him and care for others? Maybe it's something as simple as putting your phone down for a while at night so that you can study scripture and get to know God better. Maybe it's not going on that extra vacation so that you can stay at home and invest in the community that you're a part of or care for someone who's in need. Maybe it means putting aside that image you have and want other people to have of yourself so that you can be more free to share the gospel with other people or to tell them about your faith and what you believe. Or maybe it is something bigger, something like what Ruth did. Maybe it means 
you're moving out to a different country and doing missions or cross-cultural church planting. I don't know what it is for you, but I want us to consider and to ask ourselves the question, is there something I need to leave behind in order to more fully follow God and care for others? And if you're here and you're still not really sure about God, or you are sure about him, but you can't understand why would I make such a sacrifice to follow him, I want us to talk a little bit about that. It ties into my second point, which is that we need to remember Christ's sacrifice. Because here's the deal. Christ left everything for us. He not only left the good life, he left perfection. He left everything in order to come to earth to live a life among our brokenness, to take on our sin, and to make a way for us to follow him and have new life. He gave his entire life for our good so that we could be made right with God and with each other. He left heaven so that he could care for us. That is the God that we follow, a God who's willing to sacrifice everything for those that he loves, which is all of his people. And this kind of ties in, the second and third points of application are kind of similar. Um, that We need to live in that tension, right? We live in the tension of knowing that Christ has already made that sacrifice for us, and yet we still live in a broken world. So when we feel the tension of suffering and we ask things like, where is God in my suffering? Does he even care? Is he still faithful? Is he punishing me for something I did wrong? Is he still in control? And will things ever change? We can look to Christ for the answer to all those questions. God loved us so much that he was willing to suffer the ultimate sacrifice for us on the cross. He was faithful even to the point of death. God can't be punishing us because Christ already took that punishment on himself. He is in control and his sacrifice is still as real today as it was 2,000 years ago. And yes, everything will eventually change because Jesus made a way for us to experience eternity with him in perfect relationship with God when he comes back to make everything right in the new heavens and the new earth. And I realize that this isn't easy. We still live in tension. We still live among the brokenness. We live in what some people call the already but not yet. We already know that Christ has sacrificed for us, that he won the fight against sin and death and suffering, but we live in the tension of the not yet as we wait for him to come back and to make everything right. So when we live in the tension, remember Christ's sacrifice. Use it as an encouragement to keep following him, even when we don't know what's going to happen next. When we don't know why we're facing suffering, trust that God is working, that he already has done the most important work, and keep following him. Live in the tension just the way Ruth and Naomi do. Because we can hope that no matter what happens next, we know the ultimate ending of our story. And it's living in perfect relationship with our God, his people, and the world. A world where we can be his people and he can be our God with no death and no crying or pain. That's the hope that we follow as we live in this tension. We're going to move now to a time of response uh, through worship and communion. And communion serves, honestly, as a way for us to tangibly remember Christ's sacrifice. We get to practice it together as a church body as we remember Christ's broken body and his blood shed for us. We acknowledge the tension that we live in with the reality of Christ's sacrifice, the reality of our brokenness, and the hope that we have for new creation. So as we uh, worship through song, we also have the communion table up front, and we say that anybody who is a believer and a follower of Christ is welcome to come and take communion.
And if you're not a believer, I ask you to really think about it. Think about the sacrifice that Christ made uh, and ask yourself, is there anything else in this world that I'm following that is willing to sacrifice that much for me? And then as, as a third way that you can respond during this time, uh, you can give as well. We view giving as a response to God and his generosity towards us and his sacrifice. So if you'd like to give financially, there's a box in the back, um, and then there's also a way to do it online on your welcome card. All right, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to move into that time of response. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice that you made, that you left everything, you left a perfect life to come and to be with us, to be in our brokenness, and to uh, experience what it's like to live here so that you could have give us a way for a new and better life in the future. We confess that we often don't want to follow your lead in that. We don't want to sacrifice the good things in our life or the things that we think are good uh, to follow you. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would give us hearts that would want to follow your lead, that we would say, you are my God and I'm one of your people. And so, Lord, please give me a heart that wants to follow you even when it may be hard or difficult or I don't know where you're leading. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.